Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. The eyelids are one of the first areas of the face to show age, regardless of gender, in part due to the thin skin in that region. Naturally, some people may want to combat the signs of aging for cosmetic reasons, perhaps concerned about how they will be viewed and judged by others. And some may want to treat these changes for more functional reasons, such as droopy eyelids obstructing vision. But whatever the situation, it's nice to know what rejuvenation options are available should a person be interested in pursuing a revitalized look. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. Does it always require surgery or what's called a blepharoplasty? Or are some less invasive treatments a possibility? And if a surgical procedure becomes the answer, what does that involve? Well, you can pop back at any point to one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, number six, for a nice overview. But today we have Dr. John Rast, a plastic surgeon in private practice in the Midwest, to share his knowledge about this popular subject. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. Well, I'm pleased today to have with me Dr. John Rast, who has been in private practice in the Kansas City area for over 20 years. And he's actually a colleague and friend of mine, and and I know him to be an excellent physician, so it's really a treat that we have him here today. Welcome, Dr. Rast. Thank you, Regina. Thank you for having me. You bet. That southern accent you have, where are you from originally? I'm from uh, Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas. The Paris of the South, right? That's right. Eiffel Tower and everything. <laughs> That's great. We're glad you moved to KC. All right. Well, I would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about your practice. What type of patients or cases do you focus on mainly? Most of my practice is cosmetic surgery, which accounts for probably 80 to 90% of my practice now. Okay. And most of that is either facial surgery or breast surgery. Okay. And you certainly have other things you do in your practice as well, but the main focus is cosmetic. Correct. So as we're here today to talk about eyelid rejuvenation, would you start by just explaining for everyone what happens to the eyelids as we age? So typically as people age, the skin becomes thinner, the soft tissues atrophy or shrink over time, which then leads to the skin kind of drooping or sagging on the eyelids. Uh, It also leads to more things like wrinkles. And so the puffiness under the eyes becomes more prominent as people age and the tissues become more lax. Mm -hmm. So we lose that nice snapback elasticity that we had when we were younger. 
And uh, I know a lot of people miss that. And, and given that, what are some of the eyelid concerns that people come to you for in, in terms of their cosmetic appearance? What are they requesting to be changed or improved specifically? A lot of people come looking uh, to not look so tired. Uh, oh, yeah. They don't want to have the puffiness under their eyes or the bags under their eyes. They're looking at ways to improve the fine lines or some of the wrinkles around the eyes and maybe just add some uh, more youthful appearance by removing some of the skin. Is there a difference in male patients versus female patients uh, regarding what they're interested in in terms of eyelid rejuvenation? Um, most of the male patients we see are looking more for upper eyelid surgery. Female patients typically are uh, upper and lower eyelids. But I would say the majority of the male patients are strictly upper eyelids only. And for the upper eyelids, we were just talking about how mostly we're addressing extra skin. And let's go into just a little bit more detail about the lower eyelids, because I think they're just a little more complicated sometimes. So we get this puffiness down there. What is that from? And what might you try to do surgically to correct that? So the puffiness on the lower eyelids is actually three little compartments of fat. When people are younger, that fat is held back in place under the eye by a kind of like a membrane or a divider. And over time, that divider weakens, which then allows the fat to kind of get pushed out and gives the puffiness to the eyes. Surgically, most of the time, you're addressing those three little fat compartments on the lower eyelid. Whether you're removing the fat, um, releasing kind of the attachment of the membrane that holds the fat back, or you're actually even adding fat to the lower eyelid or to the cheek to kind of make everything an even level. And I think that's a concept that a lot of people have a difficult time grasping. If, if they've got this bulging fat of the lower eyelid because the supporting structures have relaxed a little bit, why would you consider adding more fat to that area? Well, you're trying to bring the cheek up to the level of the fat pads. And what that does is gives you a more youthful appearance to your eye if everything is on, the, on a level uh, plane. Um, when you see the peaks and the valleys, that gives you the appearance that the, the eyes are aging. Right. And so people are just trying to add something one way or the other, whether you decrease the amount of puffiness that someone has by removing the fat or you do a combination of things to bring it up. The goal in the end is to try to make it a level plane across the lower eyelid. Kind of smooth it out a little bit by building up that layer underneath, that nice cushion, youthful fat layer, basically. Well, very good. Well, let's split it up in terms of upper eyelids and lower eyelids. And since we were just talking about lower eyelids, let's talk about the treatment options. We've been mentioning surgery, but are there some less invasive procedures that are available for treating the contour and other issues related to the lower eyelid? Uh, sure. There's several options for the lower lids. Uh, primarily, if you're looking to improve the texture of the skin, then you would do something along the lines of uh, laser resurfacing or a chemical peel. If you're trying to add volume to the lower eyelids, you could do things such as filler. You could also uh, do things like microneedling to hopefully tighten the skin to some extent. And so there's various options, even including fat grafting, which 
is a little bit of a surgical procedure in the regards mm -hmm. that. But a lesser one. You yeah. do have an incision, yeah. but a lesser surgery than having a blepharoplasty. Yeah, and blepharoplasty just means eyelid lift, basically, or tuck, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in my practice, I always felt like filler to the lower eyelids was kind of a tricky endeavor. You really had to have excellent technique to get the results that you wanted. Uh, what's your feeling about that, and what are some of the pitfalls of trying to use filler in the lower eyelid? A filler can be very difficult on the lower eyelids, for sure. The biggest thing, and the thing that we see, I see a lot, it seems like, is that people have had filler, and the filler gets put behind or around the fat pads and not on the outside of the fat pads, which then leads, honestly, to more puffiness because mm -hmm. that's actually pushing the fat pad out even further. Yes. Um, the filler has to be kind of on the outside of that along what we call orbital rim or the bony part of the orbit, but outside of that area. Mm -hmm. And so it can be difficult sometimes to erase the crease with filler alone. Yeah, yeah, maybe a combination procedure might be of yeah. benefit. And of course, uh, you do have to be careful about where that filler goes, because sometimes if it's too superficial underneath the skin, then those patients can get some bluish discoloration in that area. Do you find that? Uh, yes. You know, we don't really see a lot of the what's called tendal effect or bluish yes. discoloration as much anymore with some of the newer fillers. But you can also make the dark appearance of the eyes a little more prominent sometimes with mm -hmm. filler, which kind of mimics the bluest discoloration people would get with a filler being too superficial. Yeah, absolutely. And what about for the upper eyelids? Are there any minimally invasive treatments that are an option? Or uh, so you could do the same. You could do laser resurfacing to see if you could get a little bit of tightening of the lid skin. You can always do chemical peels. Um, filler sometimes will help fill in the hollow air aspects of the upper lid. You can even put filler under the brow, eyebrow a little bit to kind of give a temporary elevation of the brow mm -hmm. uh, to help with the upper eyelid skin to some extent. And of course, um, a little further out, we've got those crow's feet and Botox mm -hmm. can kind of help with that too. Yeah, but I, without a doubt, Botox is probably one of the single best treatments for around the eye. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then surgically, Let's talk about what we would do to treat an upper eyelid and a lower eyelid. We've talked about it a little bit, but just want to refine that discussion a little bit more. For the upper eyelid, your goal is? Uh, the upper eyelid, you're, trying to, you're basically trying to remove the excess skin. There is a little pocket of fat on the inside corner of the eyelid. Uh, typically on the upper eyelid, the middle part of the lid, there's not as much fat there. The fat on the upper eyelid tends to be more toward the inside or the corner of the eye. can kind of bulge there too. Yeah. And a lot of times we'll go ahead and remove that fat at the same time as we're doing the, removing the extra skin. And then the lower eyelid, sometimes people have extra skin, but sometimes that's not the problem. Uh, and it's more just the supporting tissue underneath. So how do you decide what you're going to do surgically and what incision you might make. Sure. So the lower eyelids are definitely a little more complex and have a little different algorithm than the upper eyelids. So if, if the patient's younger and their main concern is just of the puffiness under their eyelids, that typically is the fat that's kind of gotten 
squished out from under the eye. And that can be removed from the inside of the eyelid through what's called a transconjunctival blepharoplasty. So there is no incision on the outside. And you can address the uh, little fat pads through the inside of the eye, which is a pretty nice way to do it. Absolutely. You can also do things on, uh, without an incision. Like once you remove the fat, you could actually add fat or fat grafting to that. Mm-hmm. If people have a little more loose skin, uh, typically that then requires kind of a combination of two things. It requires addressing the fat, and that's whether you either what we call reposition the fat by allowing the fat to kind of drape over the bony part of the eye socket, or if you remove the fat. And the whole goal when you remove the fat is not to remove too much fat so that you make the patient's eyes look hollow. You're trying to, again, make everything a pretty much a uniform plane, and then you address the skin as the last component. And typically on the lower eyelids, it doesn't require a significant amount of skin resection to get a substantial improvement. Mm-hmm. It's a, it has to do mainly with addressing the fat pockets. And where'd you say that incision was? The incision on the lower eyelids is just under the eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of goes from not quite one corner of the eye to the other, but it follows the, the lash line on the eyelashes. Yeah, and that's a a pretty nice incision location because it's really not that visible and that skin there is just so thin that it heals really nicely. So I I always thought that was pretty great. Uh, Incisions on the eyes, whether it's the upper eyelid or the lower eyelid, they tend to heal really well. And it's almost never really a problem with getting any kind of a thick scar or visible scar long term. Yeah, that's pretty great not to have that issue. And then for the people who have upper eyelid surgery, that incision is typically tucked into the crease. So when their eye is open, nobody sees it, even when their eyes closed. Yeah, all the eyelid incisions heal pretty quickly, you know, so I would say most of the time within 10 days, the incision's pretty well healed where on the upper eyelid, you know, you don't really ever see the incision because as you open your eye, the, the incision rolls back and they heal well enough, even in men who don't put on makeup on their eyes, that you, you almost never see the incision. Yeah. Now, where do you typically do your blepharoplasties and what can patients expect in terms of recovery, stitch removal, and downtime? Almost all of my cosmetic facial surgery we do in our office. We do it under local anesthesia with oral sedation which is usually something like a Valium Mm -hmm. and uh, pain medication. Uh, They're extremely well tolerated. Most of the time, the process for, say, an upper lip blepharoplasty or upper eyelid surgery takes about 45 minutes to an hour to do. Uh, The stitches are left in place for about six days. People can shower the next day. So the biggest kind of things that you would look for would be like bruising. We try to uh, eliminate the bruising by giving different kind of medications and and try to avoid having patients have a significant downtime with bruising, but it doesn't eliminate it. And so the surgery itself is pretty well tolerated under local anesthesia. Uh, lower eyelid surgery, I also do in the office under local anesthesia, and it's also very well tolerated. Lower lids take a little bit longer than the upper eyelids, but uh, also very well tolerated under a local anesthetic. How often are you doing all four lids at once? I think in my practice, I probably do about 60, maybe to 70%, mm. all four lids at the same mm-hmm. time. And what do you tell patients about activities afterwards? Do you restrict their activities and how long? 
We just tell them to, you know, basically avoid any kind of activity that would get their heart rate up. Mm -hmm. So we limit their exercise for about 10 days. Um, we tell patients that their biggest risk of a complications in the first week after surgery. So as long as they can kind of keep their activity like till walking uh, for the patients that really like to exercise, we try to tell them nothing much more than a casual walk. Mm -hmm. And then um, this same thing on the lower eyelids, the stitches are about six days uh, afterwards, uh, usually before they could resume uh, strenuous physical activity uh, somewhere between uh, two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Seems reasonable. What about any significant risks that go along with these procedures? What might be most concerning? What do you look for when you see a patient back in the office, or what do you tell your patients to look for? So the main thing we're looking for is something along the lines would be like an infection, uh, bleeding where they would have uh, bleeding from the incision. Mm -hmm. The biggest risk of having eyelid surgery is bleeding behind the eye, mm -hmm. which is actually a surgical emergency, and it's extremely, extremely rare. The biggest thing that most people would see would be what's called a nectropion, but that's where if you had lower eyelid surgery, the lower eyelid can droop uh, or be uh, unattached from the eye itself. Kind of pull down or saggy. And so it kind of pulls down, yeah, correct. And so that may require some additional surgery, Sometimes that will just go away on its own with taping and massage. But the main things that we would look for would be infection or bleeding. Yeah, the taping you mentioned, uh, I always found that to be a great little tool in the office where you're really just using paper tape to kind of provide some external support to lift the eyelid and give it a chance to recover when the swelling goes down to kind of shrink back down into the position you want it to be in. So it can be a nice little tool that will help you avoid a little extra procedure if you don't want to. The taping works really well for a lot of, uh, most of the time you don't really have to go back and do anything else. That's great. Um, I'm curious, have you ever had to counsel a patient who comes in requesting an upper eyelid procedure that they really might need a brow lift either instead of the eyelid surgery or in addition to the surgery? Uh, if so, what do you point out to them? Most of the time when people come in and they're looking for improvement in the appearance of their eyes, one of the first things you look at is to see what, what is the position of their eyebrow. And is the eyebrow the problem or is it actually just extra skin on the eyelids. Yeah. Where should the eyebrow be? And so typically for men, the eyebrow typically is a little straighter, more along the top of the uh, bony part of the eye. Uh, for women, it should kind of start low, kind of peak just to the outside of the, of the pupil and then kind of descend down. And so you got to look to see where they are before. And in today's aesthetic market or practice, you really have to look and see what treatments they have, whether they're forehead's Botoxed, and that has artificially descended their brow. Ah, yes. Good point. And so you kind of have to look and see what they had. But for the most part, you're looking to see if the brow is in a pretty normal position. If the brow is sitting in an adequate position, then basically your algorithm will take you to eyelid surgery. If the brow is descended and it's too low, and you, if you can elevate the brow, a lot of times that will improve the appearance of the upper eyelid but you still may need the brow elevation and the skin removed from the upper yeah. eyelid. How often do you think you end up doing a brow lift with an eyelid lift? Uh, probably about 10% of the time. Yeah, got it. 
Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about something else called eyelidosis. You know, we've been talking about cosmetic uh, concerns of the appearance of the eye from extra skin kind of settling down and being full. But there is an entity called eyelidosis, which is a different problem. And that can create a droopy eyelid as well. What is that? And, and is the treatment different? Uh, it's absolutely different. Uh, eyelidosis is where the muscle that elevates or raises the eyelid kind of separates from the eyelid itself. And so that surgery then requires you to reattach the muscle back to the eyelid. And so it's kind of like having a window shade that doesn't go all the way up. Yes, makes sense. And so most of the time that can be a functional problem. Uh, it can impair your vision. And so that's a little different than just removing extra skin. It does require a little more finesse to do the surgery because you're raising the eyelid maybe just a couple of millimeters, so a very tiny amount. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a, it's more of a functional surgery yeah. for the most part. And I think a lot of people have questions about whether or not insurance covers eyelid surgeries. What do you tell them when they come in? So if people have concerns, I, I kind of will always look at their eyes and and if they have a significant amount of extra skin on their eyelids and they want to kind of proceed that route, I always have them go have a functional visual fields test done uh, and see an optometrist. And if they're able to get that test done, then it definitely demonstrates a decrease in their peripheral vision, then we will submit it to their insurance and, and go that route. Fair enough. Okay. And that's for the upper eyelids, not the lower eyelids, of course. Yeah, the upper eyelids are the only ones that ever really are impacted. Yeah. Uh, you know, and some people are curious about what uh, has been termed double eyelid surgery, or some people even call it Asian blepharoplasty. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. For most East Asian patients, the lack of the fold is due to a poor attachment of the skin to the underlying tissues. And typically with Asian patients, they have a little more fat in their upper eyelids, which kind of is a barrier somewhat to that attachment. And so there are several surgeries in which you create a crease in the upper eyelid just above the eyelashes. You're not really trying to change the overall appearance of their eyes, but just try to make a crease just above mm -hmm. the eyelashes. And there, that can be done in a couple of ways. It can be done with a, an open incision, very similar to what would be considered an eyelid surgery or blepharoplasty. Or it can be done with what, what's called an incisionless technique and basically done with sutures. Mm -hmm. Both techniques work. The open technique tends to be more reliable mm -hmm. and probably gives a more predictable, long-lasting result. Mm, that makes sense. Well, very good. That's so informative. Well, I wonder, you know, in all of your experience uh, with cosmetic surgery, particularly involving the face, do you happen to have a story about a, a particular patient you'd like to share where perhaps, you know, their treatment of their eyelid concern really had a positive impact on their life or really made a big difference for them? Yeah, we saw a lady approximately about a month ago who had undergone a, a lower lid blepharoplasty, and she came in for uh, an ectropion for which she was basically told there wasn't anything else that she could have done. And again, an ectropion is? The lower eyelid pulling away or pulling down from the eye. So a complication. And so we did a canthopexy for her and 
kind of restored the more uh, youthful appearance to her eye and kind of improved the lid position. And she was just so ecstatic that it could have been done and it was a pretty easy surgery. And so, you know, from that standpoint, some, it's very nice to have that. It's got to make you feel good. Yeah, I think so. Uh, It makes them feel good. That's the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure you have plenty of stories like that, too. That's that's one of the joys of being a plastic surgeon is being able to do things for people that make them feel better, whether it's for cosmetic reasons or functional reasons. You know, the feeling is still good. Well, any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about our subject today? No, I think uh, uh, eyelid surgeries overall is one of the, if you're looking to improve the appearance of your face or improve the appearance around your eyes, it's probably one of the easiest things that gives you a very nice result without having a significant amount of downtime. Blepharoplasty surgery, whether it's the upper eyelids or lower eyelids, is a real nice procedure that is, is relatively straightforward for most of the part and um, gets the results or the appearance improved significantly, you know, pretty quickly. That's great. Well, Dr. John Rass, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you sharing all your knowledge with everyone. Thank you, Regina. Thank you for having me. You bet. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.